Citizen Reporter number 375, 16th of April 2011. Your television incarnate, Diana. Indifferent to suffering. Insensitive to joy. All of life is reduced to the common rubble of banality. War, murder, death. All the same to you as bottles of beer. And the daily business of life is a corrupt comedy. You even shatter the sensations of time and space into split seconds and instant replays. All right, my guest today is a journalist and a community activist uh, based in New Orleans. Uh, he was there before the flood, and he was there during the federal flood, and still today writing about issues going on in New Orleans. First time on this podcast, uh, let's welcome uh, Jordan Flaherty. Thank you, Mark. It's great to be on. Yeah, and so I, I, I'm very glad to have you on. You've been touring the country, uh, to, uh, I think, among other reasons, uh, to promote and talk about the issues in your in your book, Floodlines, uh, which I'm sure we'll, we'll get into as we go along. I found you a few months ago, maybe at the end of 2010, because of the issue of prisons. And I went to New Orleans myself, just a, you know, a Johnny-come-lately kind of journalist wandering around with, with the rest, um, recovery workers. And one of the issues I did notice was prisons. Uh, I went to the uh, the lockup. I think that was considered OPP at that time, or at least this temporary version of it. Uh, and I remember there was a lot of discussion about the conditions. It was only been a few, uh, about two years since the storm, and people were, it was this makeshift prison, and people were in, uh, talking about the conditions there, how bad they were. Um, nowadays, I mean, what has the city of New Orleans been doing over the last few years when it comes to prisons? Well, it's you know, first of all, we're the incarceration capital of the world. You know, Louisiana locks up um, uh, almost one out of every uh, thousand people um, in the state, which is the highest rate in the U.S. The U.S. is, of course, the highest rate in the world, and New Orleans is the highest rate out of Louisiana. So uh, we have a huge, huge incarceration rate, and most of that is really centered around a few uh, African-American communities in the city. Uh, the vast majority of people in our jail are African American, and in the state prisons as well. Uh, in the and in the youth jail in the city of New Orleans, um, the official population is 99% African American. So, very disproportionate justice. Um, and actually, the U.S. Just Department of Justice issued a report criticizing conditions in the jail, um, and another report criticizing the police department, where they said that they found every problem that they'd seen in any other police department in the country, plus several problems they'd never seen anywhere else before. So uh, we have a deeply, deeply troubled criminal injustice system in the city. And um, that's the problem. You know, that's, that's where we come into this. But the positive is we have an incredible, vibrant, grassroots social justice movement that's working to gain justice on these issues. And in fact, uh, you know, some of the leaders of the movement are people most impacted by this system. So, for example, Norris Henderson uh, spent 27 years in Angola prison, a former slave plantation, 
that is uh, now a maximum security prison in the state uh, for a crime he didn't commit. And he was released a couple of years before Hurricane Katrina. While he was in prison, he was everyone's jailhouse lawyer and helped free several innocent people. And since he's been out, he's been a tireless community organizer and a real inspiration. And he's been a real leader in, in the fight for uh, for a smaller prison and for um, and a price uh, and against uh, discrimination on the part of the police department. Uh, so he, he's been with an organization called Safe Street Strong Communities and another organization called Voice of the Ex-Offender. And these have been uh, organizations that have led this grassroots struggle of community organizing for a smaller prison in the in the city. Let's talk about the struggle uh, you've already started uh, on the struggle for a smaller prison. Now, there are forces, and I guess we should talk about who these forces are, if it's possible, that want to build more, a larger prison, uh, you know, accommodate even more prisoners. And then there are those that are fighting, as you mentioned, for smaller. Let's talk about that conflict. Well, I think, uh, you know, if you go back to, to Nixon, you know, his 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 strategy that he had not got from Goldwater was appealing to, um, to white racism by sort of uh, plugging into fear of crime and saying they was going to lock more people up. And Reagan, I think, did very successfully. And we, we've seen since the 60s a huge, huge increase in the number of people in prison, making us, again, you know, by far the highest incarcerated in the world. And in every city in the U.S. Um, and every state, it, you know, politicians have found that they can't really lose votes by locking people up, that, right. you know, especially because people in jail, you know, are generally deprived of the right to vote. So, it, you know, it's, it's been kind of a, a winning issue for politicians everywhere, um, and it's an uphill struggle to, to fight it. But, you know, in New Orleans, where you have such uh, um, such a huge amount of the city that's affected by this, you know, and a city with a population of, by the last census, about 350,000, we had 60,000 people pass through our city jail last year. You know, that gives you an, a sense of, of the huge numbers. Um, and, you know, when you think of in, in most uh, white communities in the city, most people don't know people that have passed through the jail. You know, it just multiplies how much, again, African-American communities are targeted. Yes. Also, in, in this moment with... Uh, with the reconstruction money that was coming in from uh, FEMA, the federal agency, building up some money for reconstruction, there was, uh, uh, you know, they were going to be giving some money for a new jail. The previous jail was flooded, as you mentioned. So this was really an opportunity to fight over what size the new jail would be. Hmm. I, I don't know if there are any other states that do uh, what Louisiana does when it comes to prison building. You mentioned in, in an article that I read of yours on Alternet that the state, or at least uh, New Orleans, gets more money if they put more people in jail. Yeah, and you know, ironically, that actually came out of... Um, a civil rights lawsuit in the 60s where the ACLU and, and uh, some plaintiffs were, were filing a suit against uh, against the city for really terrible treatment in the jail. And part of the settlement of the lawsuit was that there was going to be a per diem paid by the city to the jail for every prisoner. And the idea was that was going to improve conditions. But unfortunately, what happened instead was it became this financial incentive for the jail, that the more prisoners they put in, the more money they have. And the, the city sheriff, who is over the jail, it's an elected position, he already has a huge amount of, of, of power. 
and, and by basically telling him that his department gets larger, he has more money, he can hire more staff if he has more prisoners, it's, this, it's actually this huge incentive to grow the population of the jail. And in fact, by the way, the ACLU and the other plaintiffs have since pulled out of the lawsuit because, you know, they disagree with this, this solution that, that was found from it. But, uh, you know, the, um, there's, nobody's been able to get a judge to cancel that initial order of setting that per diem as the way that the, the financing for the jail is set. Yeah. yeah, as I read that, I mean, I found myself wondering, I live here in the Netherlands, but I was raised in the U.S., and... and I start to wonder how other states and other countries handle prison systems, and I don't know the answer to that on, on different you know scenario, uh, cases, but it sounds like I think no other place in the world, or very few, would operate under that kind of model that the more people you put in jail, the more money you get, because that would, of course, result in the obvious problem that I think a lot of people can see. Uh, you would put people in jail in order to continue to uh, increase your, your, your budget. I mean, I guess somebody could argue, no, we wouldn't do that. Uh, and, and I suppose that's what they are arguing. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, to, to, to give some context for folks, uh, pre-Katrina, our city jail had, had 7,500 people. Um, now, right now, it's got 3,500 uh, 3, beds, you know, which is uh, smaller than that high, but, of course, our population of the city is smaller post-Katrina. Uh, now, if, if we were... Um, on par with the national average um, for, you know, amount of, of jail beds for population. Keep in mind, the national average is, of course, still much higher than anywhere else in the world, than anywhere in Europe. And, you know, the national, you know, we have the highest average in the country. But if we were just on par with the national average, it would be 800 beds. So, you know, that, that, that 3,500 is, is still many times higher than the national average. Yeah. Um I remember from my time in New Orleans, and, and I've read also in your own writing, about the reasons that people uh, are locked up and held for quite a long time in, in uh, jails in New Orleans. One of them, the classic, uh, drunken, I, I don't know if it's called drunken disorderly, but basically public drinking. Um, it, it, talk about that a little bit, because I think especially people in other countries, or, or other states for that matter, uh, don't go to jail and then stay there for, I think, a matter of days even, uh, because of drinking. But in New Orleans, they do. Uh, right. The people locked up for, for all kinds of charges. You know, one thing that's, that happens here, and I think it does happen in other states as well, is um, is if they uh, arrest someone on uh on some minor charge that they would be released in a day, like uh, as, as you say, public drunkenness or something. If they're if they're um, if they have sort of suspect immigration status, um, the uh, ICE, which is the federal agency that that oversees immigration, will ask the sheriff to hold them for 48 hours for ICE to get there. Um, and so, you know, that, that's common. I think jails throughout the country do that. But, you know, what, what's slightly different in, in New Orleans, uh, although I think some other jails do this as well, is that if ICE, ICE often doesn't come within those 48 hours, um, and the jail will just continue to hold them for ICE. So they're basically holding them on, on no charges other than that the Immigration Service wants to look at them. And so we've actually had people in jail for six months, nine months, um, you know, just basically because they're on this hold from ICE, and it's, again, partly because the sheriff gets money for every day he's holding these people uh, in, in the jail. Um, but, yeah, you, you, you have people held for parking tickets. Um, sometimes, again, if, if someone has uh, um, a lot of unpaid parking tickets, there's a warrant out for them. Even if it's not in the city, it's, it's, it's in another, uh, another part of the state. 
um, they'll hold people on those parking tickets until the, you know, and then put out a, a notice to the other city if they want to pick them up or not. Um, now, this is something that people have actually had some success in changing. There, there's been a group of um, of activists with an organization called the Workers' Center for Racial Justice that works uh, in the Latino community in the city, and they have been fighting the sheriff to stop these holds on immigration prisoners. Uh, some of these other organizations that I mentioned have been fighting um, uh, on, on some of these these other uh, these other arrests, these arrests for parking tickets and public drunkenness, and they've they've actually gotten the police department to agree not to arrest people on these petty charges, and, and we've actually seen the jail population um, shrink remarkably just in the past couple months as they've implemented these changes. So there actually has been real successes from grassroots organizing, and in fact. Uh, um, from this grassroots organizing, they actually got the city council to uh, set the size of, of the new jail to be 1,200, um, which is a huge drop from the current 3,500. Even though it's still higher than a, the national average, it's a it's a huge victory. And this happened from this really well-coordinated and strategically fought campaign that brought in everything from religious groups to grassroots activists and organizers to media makers they uh, bought out an ad in the paper, they had marches, they went into city council, they um, lobbied legislators. Um, so they, they, people took multiple, multiple tactics to really um, build a coalition that could fight for the smaller jail. And although the struggle is not over, they, they won a huge victory in that. So, okay, so that is very interesting that, in fact, the, the push for sm a smaller prison has, has had a win. Uh, that is interesting and, and, and news I didn't know about. Here, here's one that I never found the answer to, and, and perhaps you have. Uh, it was touched upon here and there, usually in the alternative press, about the lost cases, the lost uh, files of many uh, prisoners uh, serving longer sentences or otherwise, because the records were kept in the basement, I think was one of the stories. Um, I think, in, in fact, truth, not just a, a, a story. Um, what did they ever do with these cases, and I think there were many, of people whose information was simply lost in Katrina and, and you know, were still in prison? Well, one of the most shocking stories is, is the people that were currently in that jail during Katrina. And again, it was about 7,500 people. Uh, when the floodwaters started to rise after the levees broke after the storm, the, the staff of the jail actually left. And so the prisoners were kind of left there behind bars as the water was rising, um, you know, for, for cells on the ground floor. The, you know, the water, I think, rose to about six feet, so it's, you know, over some people's heads. Um, and and people were were like that, um, you know, with, with with no bathroom, with with rising water, you know, risking drowning um, uh, for um, for more than a day. And then state police came in and basically um, took people out of the jail. They were macing people and pepper spraying them and uh, tasering them and and moving them, moving the thousands of people uh, out of the jail and then shipping them to these upstate prisons. Now, keep in mind, of that 7,500, since that's a city jail, the vast majority are people that had just been arrested, so they had not been convicted of any crime. Uh, these were not people held post-conviction. These were people who had just been arrested. Again, the vast majority for, for nonviolent offenses, um, many of them for public drunkenness, for parking tickets, for other minor municipal offenses. Uh, and they were shipped to these maximum security prisons upstate, uh, and then the the records were were basically lost. Uh, there was 
you know, they didn't even know who was where or, or you know, or often what people had been arrested, why they were there. Uh, and at the same time, and another uh, really unfortunate and kind of crazy thing about our system, our public defender system was funded based on traffic tickets. So, mm-hmm. so the, the salaries for the public defenders was paid by traffic tickets. And you had in this post-Katrina period, of course, there was nobody in the city, no cars, and so no traffic tickets. So the entire staff of the public defender office was, was laid off. Um, so you had virtually no lawyers to defend people. You had no records. You had people shipped up around the state. Uh, and for several months, the, this was the status quo. People who would, who would have been released, um, you know, the, the day after Hurricane Katrina spent at a minimum months uh, uh, lost in the system. Uh, you know, completely, completely outrageous and, and really shocking that this happened in, you know, so-called first world country. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's you, know, you know, everyone involved in that should be able to have a lawsuit. They should be, you know, there should be some recompense. I mean, it, it's just outrageous how people were treated. Hmm. Uh, I've suddenly started thinking of the the visual of New Orleans. You know, I know that a lot of people listening may have been to New Orleans in the last, I don't know, 10 to 20 years. And they, of course, will remember the French Quarter and a lot of the very beautiful areas. But, in fact, the 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 prison uh, of the, the city, uh, I believe it's called OPP still, um, yeah. it's located right downtown, isn't it? Because I remember this sprawling sort of, at that time, of course, makeshift uh, uh, mixture of, of permanent buildings and temporary buildings, and that sky, I think it was, it was not a skyscraper, but it had several floors high that was supposed to be the prison that was, I guess, declared um, c- condemned, unfit to use. Have they knocked that down? Can you give us a little bit of a visual? Because I want people to, to have an idea of, of where this prison is in terms of the city, in the heart of the city, really. Well, you know, when people think of the heart of the city or downtown, oftentimes they mean the French Quarter. And, and the, the city jail is not there in the French Quarter. It's, it's in uh, what's known as the mid-city neighborhood. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, New Orleans is a very small town geographically. I get around by bicycle and I can pretty much get anywhere pretty quickly. Hmm. Uh, so, yeah, the, the, the jail is, is not far from... Uh, from the the, the downtown, um, and it's it's a huge sprawling complex that crosses several blocks, um, several buildings. There's there's one main building, uh, kind of classical architecture building of uh, that um, also has the, the the courthouses in it, and then um, uh, the the other buildings in the jail. Uh, several hundred of the prisoners are actually held in tents. Um, I remember large yeah. tents that can fit, um, you know, hundreds, hundreds of people in them, um, but but tents actually. Uh, and you know, another thing that that's that's unique about the the city jail and that you know sort of partly allows for there to be more people in there. there there's a mix of the recently arrested as well as some state prisoners who have been convicted, some uh, federal prisoners as well. So um, there's a mix of different prisoners that uh, you know spanned across these different buildings and. This position of criminal sheriff, it's really a patronage empire where he has uh, hundreds of employees working for them, and he has ultimate control over what he, what those employees do. He can even have them working on his re-election campaign. Um, it's, it's, it really is an empire that this sheriff has there, and he you know, owns much of the property within this, this area. Owns, you know, not personally, but through his office that he has ultimate control over. So it's, it's, it's quite an empire. Yeah, I mean, in, in, 
earlier you mentioned the when it comes to abuse of power and and uh, the the power of the police and in terms of the fact that in New Orleans the police I believe you said are are particularly have a high rate of uh, being um, what is it called when they're sued or when they have uh, basically are accused of misconduct is that that's still a, a big problem in New Orleans isn't it? Well, you know, we just had a couple officers um, convicted of. Um, federal ci- civil rights offenses in the in the beating death of uh, of someone. This just happened the other day. The conviction was the other day. The beating death was from 2005. Uh, a couple months before, we had a couple officers convicted of the killing of Henry Glover, who was an African American male who was shot by one police officer as as Glover walked behind uh, a shopping center in the days after Hurricane Katrina. In June, we have another trial for officers that drove up to a group of civilians walking on Danziger Bridge, which is a bridge in the city um, uh, about five days after Hurricane Katrina, and started firing on these civilians, uh, killing two, wounding four. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, we're, you know, these cases are coming to trial um, right now. Now, now these, these cases, there was virtually no action on them for years after Hurricane Katrina. For three years, our media refused to investigate the district attorney refused to investigate. The U.S. attorney refused to investigate. The coroner aided in the cover-up. But people at the grassroots worked for years to get these stories out and to document what had happened and to get federal involvement until finally in early 2009, they were able to get the Justice Department to investigate. And now we have dozens of, uh, of officers under investigation, at least nine incidents under investigation. We just had this 108-page report from the Justice Department that condemns the police department for a wide range of offenses. And it's likely there'll be some form of federal oversight declared over the police department. And this happened as a result of this you know, multi-year campaign led by the grassroots and especially led by those people most affected, by former prisoners like Norris Henderson, Robert Goodman, another former prisoner in, in the city, uh, who who went door to door and built an organization and, and built a base um, that could fight on these issues. Hmm. Yeah, it's one of the great parts about getting to speak with you, Jordan, is actually to hear the good news. You know, I come up with all these questions I still have, concerns. Some of these things seem so hard to find a solution to, and and you point out the uh, the people in the community that in fact are making progress. I wanted to make sure to talk about uh, floodlines. Um, it goes, of course, from Katrina way beyond, uh, including the story of the, the Gina 6, that, which we have not gotten into and we won't in this program. Um, but uh, tell us a little bit about, um, well, besides what I've just mentioned, uh, in the book there are also stories of, of post-Katrina recovery and, and, and beyond uh, when it comes to New Orleans and life there. You know, I was reading an article recently by an organizer named Below, and he said, you know, uh, it's not enough to be a doctor that just diagnoses without healing, and it's not enough to describe the the boot that's on our neck. We need to also figure out how we can get it off of our neck. And that's why I think that this lesson of the organizing that happened in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina is so important, because here in New Orleans we faced the same issues people are facing everywhere, education, healthcare, criminal justice, housing. But as you've heard with this criminal justice example, we faced them on hyperspeed. We faced very extreme examples 
uh, to give another example from education, just after Katrina, the entire staff of our public school system was fired. 7,500 teachers, uh, lunchroom workers, janitors, everyone from the school system. Their union, which was the largest union in the state, ceased to exist. It ceased to be recognized. Uh, you know, and we've seen, I think, now similar struggles in, in Wisconsin where uh, the teachers' unions were under attack. So in many ways, New Orleans was the, the cutting edge, the forefront of these attacks on working people. But the organizing that we saw in response, I think, has been really incredible. And again, as we talked about with these criminal justice issues, people won important victories. And I think that those victories are especially powerful if they can be multiplied and amplified to other places. And that's that's why floodlines exist, to try and tell those stories and, and give people the, the opportunity to learn from these really important struggles I think people have been through in New Orleans. Yeah, the book, Floodlines, Community and Resistance, from Katrina to the Genesis, floodlines.org is the website, and you can get the book on um, Haymarket Books, as well as Amazon. Uh, Jordan Flaherty, thanks so much for taking the time. It's a, it's a pleasure to, to have you on what I hope is not the, the only time you'll ever be on my program. I look forward to hearing from you in the, in the future. Thank you again, Mark. It was great talking to you. The wrath and the shapely glass Ingredients simpler once you're on your ways to ask Zero tolerance to raise the tax It don't matter how your gates is last You ain't safe from the danger, Jack Made away before they made the map Or a GPS, this is DEF Lead I know where I'm going even when it's dark And being let down that road You don't see that something's wrong Earth's spinning out of control Everything's for sale between the greenhouse gases and earth spinning off its axis got mother nature doing backflips the natural disasters it's like 80 degrees in alaska you in trouble if you're not in no nastiness it ain't hard to tell the good conditions is drastic just turn on the telly check for the news flashing how you want it bag paper or plastic lost in translation or just lost in traffic yo i don't want to floss i done lost my passion and i ain't trying to climb yo i lost my traction they making me break my contents under pressure do not shake i'm working while the boss relaxing here comes the taxman he leaving a fraction give me back some matter of fact next paycheck it's like that son i fuck around and have to hurt a few men they probably talk it up as a disturbing new trend Hello. i know where i'm going even when it's dark and being let down that road you don't see that something's wrong earth spinning out of control Stop! 